in Swazi and Good Morning Church. It's great to be here and looking forward to uh, this morning and what God would say to us. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, please uh, grab it and turn there. And I just want to double down on what YG said about our weekend getaway. We just love these times together, and we haven't had the chance to do it in quite a few years. We really want to encourage you to get stuck in on that. It's just a beautiful time community of having a deposit from God as He breathes fresh life into us. And there's just something amazing that happens in these times away. So I really want to encourage you to uh, lean in together as we uh, enjoy one another and God on that weekend. Please, would you get stuck in there? All right, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the story of David and Mephibosheth. Uh, I know we have a lot of pregnancies in the room, so if you're looking for names, I just want to drop that one in the hat. It's a, a winner for, for sure. But one of the things I've been loving, if you're new here today or you're joining us uh, or, or you're not uh, in the mix of where we're at, we've been going through a series on the life of David. And it's been a really encouraging series for me because we all know David, the amazing king, man after God's heart. But um, the Bible is so honest about all his failures as well. And so we've seen this picture of David, the saint and the sinner. And uh, it's just an incredible encouragement to us uh, again, and I just love uh, how the Bible is just so honest. You're like, you know, David the king, I think, has quite a, a lot of authority of what stories get told about him, and he's secure enough in uh, who he is in God to let the bad stuff get included with the good stuff. He's not uh, getting involved in uh, perception management or royal PR. He uh, lets it all out there for our good, that we get to see uh, what God does in all our mess and in all our brokenness. And he's not just for us uh, when we're doing things well and when we're at our best, but also when we're at our worst. I think that's good news for me. I know that's good news for you as well. Uh, Today, though, is a story of probably David at his absolute best. This is a brilliant story that I have been amazed at and I've been uh, just drawn to worship God the more I've been reflecting on it and looking at Uh, into it. And so I said, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Let's turn there together. You'll be happy to hear that this week, the chapter's only 13 verses. And so it's less of a marathon as we have had in previous weeks. But it is a glorious story of God's grace at work. And we're going to be digging into some of these amazing truths together. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 to 13. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's uh, Saul's family named named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Micah, son of Emil. So King David had him brought from the house of Micah, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid. 
David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him and to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, your servants will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. It's an amazing passage. I just find it, that ending there, his feet had been injured. So it seems a bit random, but it's incredibly important to our story because it's just re-emphasizing the helplessness of Mephibosheth and his need for mercy. Would we just pray together with me as we come to God's word this morning? Jesus, I pray this morning again, as we look into this text, would you open your eyes, our eyes to see Jesus more clearly here? Would you help us feel again the beauty and gift of grace and mercy even given to us and the ultimate expression of how we see that in the gospel. We pray that you would be among us this morning, uh, that you would speak to us. God, I pray that uh, you would give me words of life to your people that come from you. Uh, we also just want to pray uh, this morning uh, for Doug, who's preaching at our family, God First Parks. God, we pray also for them in this moment that you would uh, bless the preaching of your word uh, to that church, that you would pour out your spirit among them and uh, grow them in the gospel and feed them in the gospel this morning. Amen. So some context uh, before we get going to the story of Mephibosheth, because it's quite amazing. The story begins in one chap uh, one, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, and we're told that um, Saul has uh, died in battle. That happens at the end of 1 Samuel. And Saul's sons have all died in battle. And so what's happening in this whole moment is that um, the news gets back to the palace of Saul and they're obviously frightened because now their king and their protection has been overthrown and it's all gone. So they're fearing for their lives. They're thinking either the Philistines are going to come in and take over and destroy everything that belonged to Saul and his kingdom, or maybe David was going to do that. Either way, they're afraid, and they're feeling, fearing for their lives. So what they do is they grab what they can, and they literally run for their lives. Uh, this is all of the servants of the house and all the remaining uh, family of Saul run for their lives. And we're told um, in 2 Samuel 4 uh, that Mephibosheth uh, and his nurse were running. Uh, Mephibosheth would have been around five years old at this point, and his nurse is carrying him, and in their haste, to, uh, to run away and leave, she trips and drops him and both of his ankles break. And it would seem that this is an injury that stays with him for the rest of his life. 
And that's what it's talking about when it says his, his feet um, weren't working properly. They was, he was a cripple. And uh, just before we move on to the rest of the story, I just want to take a quick moment just to enter into a little bit of where Mephibosheth may have been in his heart and in his life. Because it's really important for us to understand how this impact of grace changed him and shaped him. See, up until this point in his life, he, he's much older by now. And his life had been shaped by grief and suffering. We can only imagine what this trauma and crisis moment had done for him and how it had shaped him. Maybe even until this moment, he's carried with him incredible fear and resentment and bitterness and anger. Maybe daily he's carrying uh, just the wounds of this trauma. And uh, so much so that we read that his... Uh, name is Mephibosheth. We, we actually see later in two Chronicles, um, 1 Chronicles chapter 9, we think his birth name is actually Meribah, but his name gets changed to Mephibosheth, and this is, you may want to remove it from the list of options for the newborns in the room, because Mephibosheth means seething dishonor. Seething dishonor. That may be a sum of what he is feeling given all the crisis and trauma and pain that he's carried with him that has been inflicted on him. I don't know what you think, but what would you think his personality is like? See, like happy-go-lucky, maybe? Seething dishonor? He's probably incredibly angry. And then to add insult to injury, literally, he gets taken to a place called Lo-Debar. Now, Lo-Debar, Lo means no, and Debar means good. Imagine being taken to a place called nothing good. Well, I know some of us are saying, yeah, but it's called Joburg. <laughs> right? There, there is pain in this uh, for him. And just to add, as he's grown up and living in this area, he's incredibly low, lonely. He's living in hiding. He's crippled. He's growing up without a dad, without uncles, without brothers to protect him and to love him. He's carrying incredible pain. And uh, I think just this morning, as, as we zoom out a bit, I, I don't mention all of that to uh, induce sympathy uh, within us for Mephibosheth. I, I more mention that because I think it's going to help us understand the impact of grace on the broken. And us as the broken. I think it probably took Mephibosheth a long time to stop being suspicious about David's love or to maybe feel that he was actually truly loved and lovable. There's probably a lot of obstacles and pain that this grace had to overcome in his life. And I think part of why God has allowed the story in the scripture is for us to see the impact of grace. And again, as we zoom out, like all these stories we've been looking at, it's not just a story of one guy many years ago. This story is ultimately pointing us to the story of stories. And how the gospel is a picture of what God has done for us just like this. You see, friends, this story is not ultimately about how we need to love people like David loved Mephibosheth. It's ultimately a story about how we have been loved like Mephibosheth in Jesus. And so that's what I want us to look at to get today. This is just an amazing story of gospel-centeredness um, and gospel fruit in the Old Testament, about God's grace. It's a story of love driven by mercy 
And uh, if you're a note taker, I want you to just look at four things, four ways God's grace works in this passage that shape us and change us and help us see and know and become more like Jesus. The first way, and we see this through the example of David, is that God's grace leads in love. We see this multiple times in the passages. They use a Hebrew word called chesed. And uh, it's often in the scriptures just translated as love, uh, which is in English not a powerful thing. English is a silly language sometimes because it's not very precise. Like we can love our spouse, we can love the Lord, and we can love our favorite breakfast cereal. It's not particularly helpful in helping us know what it's really getting at. And the word is maybe a little bit more helpful. Difficult to translate at times, and it would seem that it is um, uh, linked to the context of passages. But it's sometimes translated loving kindness, sacrifice, mercy, grace, or just generally love. We're seeing all of that in this passage, but particularly love driven by mercy. And the way uh, David loves really is the way leaders should love. But we know it sort of surprises us because that's so often not the case. In fact, we probably know more leaders who don't love like this than do. And we're seeing in David some amazing things. Just to give us, again, some context into how David is just totally different to so many kings throughout history, so many rulers throughout history, in his transition from Saul to him, as he becomes the new king, usually what would happen when people are setting up their kingdom and kingship, two things would happen. They would eliminate any potential threats. They'd get rid of any other heirs to the throne or old heirs to the throne. They'd, um, anyone who would be a potential threat or enemy to their kingship would be dealt with and exterminated. And then they'd establish loyalty, usually or often through power and fear and coercion and control. And we're seeing something completely different in David because he's not motivated by those things. He seems to be motivated much more by love than by fear. And we see this in how he treats Mephibosheth. She starts off there in verse 1 asking the question, if there's anyone left in Saul's house who I can pay back, take revenge on? No, love. Love is what he says. Is there anyone there who I can show kindness to for his sake? That's pointing back to his friendship with his best mate, Jonathan, who was Saul's son. They made a promise to love each other's families and offspring. And so David's doing that here. But you see, the difference is that unlike Saul, David is not looking anxiously to take care of any potential threats. He's looking for those to love. And so in verse 6 and 7 of our text today, what happens when Mephibosheth comes before David? It says he comes in fear and with great anxiety, expecting to be around his grandfather Saul. And he knows how Saul used to treat enemies and threats. And yet what happens? David looks at him, he calls his name, recognizes him as a person, and says, do not be afraid. I'm going to treat you with kindness. I've been just thinking this week a little bit about this. And I just, um, I just want to encourage us. When it comes to our relationships at a relational level, how often 
Do things sometimes operate more out of fear and power and frustration instead of love, kindness, and patience? And I think it's partly because we have a lie definitely in politics, but in our culture that says that the only way of getting things done properly and well and quickly is to control or influence people through manipulation and intimidation using power and fear as our tools. That's just, that demonstrates or exemplifies so much of uh, how, how bad leadership happens in our country. And this is not a new thing to us. Again, that's what we see in the old King Saul. If you remember his story, he was anxious to retain control. He used power to intimidate. He manipulated for selfish gain, and he demanded obedience through instilling fear. And again, through the example of David's whole kingship, and he's a very imperfect king, and the coming weeks are going to um, tap some of that out in incredible ways. There is so much sin in his life and brokenness in his family. But David uh, leads in a different way. He's less anxious for his own power. He's less anxious uh, about manipulating and controlling people. He doesn't get involved with the domineering that so often happens in leadership. He's motivated by love. He's not what he can get from Mephibosheth. He wants to love him. And I think partly where that comes from is that David himself is a man who's been shaped by grace. He understands that it's God alone who has given him this gift of leadership. It's not his to protect and uh, Though he might lose it, God sets his timing of what happens when. And God, and he knows that before he's a king, he's a son. And so he, he's free to love. God's grace has gotten into this guy. He's changed him from leading in selfish, fearful ways to being able to lead freely with love. So he treats Mephibosheth with mercy and grace. And there is just so much in this for us in our relationships, and maybe that's a sermon for another day. Because just to reflect a little bit, maybe this afternoon or this week, what is a life intent on showing mercy to others look like? What if we lived with a filter of how to treat people and love people? It's an amazing encouragement that I see here. And what's the impact it has on Mephibosheth? It changes his life. And let's just look at a few of those things together. That's the second thing I want to look at, is that God's grace welcomes the weak. It welcomes the weak. It's one of the truths we see in the Scripture that's just so amazing, is that David uh, wants to love Mephibosheth, even though he's got very little to offer. Again, central to the story is just the weakness of Mephibosheth. He, of course, physically, but in any he can't defend himself, promote himself. He's got nothing about his appearance that is impressive. And uh, he's got nothing that would give him an edge on, on others. He spends most of his life in obscurity and suffering. He's just a broken man and a mess. And he comes before the king in absolute weakness and need. And instead of being met with judgment and rejection or even punishment, he's met with mercy and grace. And he gets a welcome home. It's just amazing. But I want us to move beyond the relational level. Because again, this isn't just something to uh, implement in our horizontal relationships. This story is given to us that we would understand what's happened to us between us and God vertically. It's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? 
So what makes a Christian a Christian is that we've received mercy, that we've come to God in our brokenness and weakness and received grace. And I've just been thinking a little bit about how uh, this shapes how we understand the gospel message. Because if being a Christian is about receiving mercy, what do we believe the gospel is? But it's not just polish on what is otherwise a very good life. It's given, it's a gift given for us, the undeserving. And so it's not a reward for the strong, it's a gift for the weak, because we could never earn it. See, this is why weakness is the only appropriate posture for the Christian life. It starts in weakness, knowing we could never be good enough, and nothing has changed, my friends. It continues in weakness. We can never contribute. There's nothing good enough, uh, nothing in us good enough that could earn His grace. Now, this flies in the face of our culture, doesn't it? That's so concerned about appearing strong, being impressive, working on our perception, coming across well to others. We get to come before God knowing that we are known in full and that all our weakness is completely seen by Him and yet there is mercy for us. Have a look with me at Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Isn't that amazing? Right? Not just weak, we were dead. There is no more posture more impotent than deadness. And I think Paul is putting that uh, imagery there for uh, a reason, to help us understand our powerlessness to change everything about our own souls. And yet, just like Mephibosheth, in our weakness and brokenness, when we weren't looking for the king, the king came look, looking for us to save us and to love us and to We've been welcomed in. Uh, I just want to speak very briefly into two ways I think that this changes us in our daily lives. As we come together as a church, uh, and love one another as a church, how we operate and uh, function together as a church, and uh, even, yeah, even as how we live uh, out there. And I think the two ways that we think about sin and, and treat grace and act and then how uh, it speaks into our suffering. I mean, what I'm saying is this. How, how does a theology of weakness speak into sin? And I think this way, it, it helps us own and be honest about our own weaknesses and brokenness and fail, failures. See, we have a tendency in our own legalism to come before God feeling that we need to either pretend we're doing better than we are or perform our way into His good books. And so that can come into where, how we treat one another. As we come here, we have such a fear, a fear of failure that we're going to be judged for how bad we're doing that we tend to act like a little bit better than we really are. So we pretend and we perform. A theology of weakness kills that because the gospel of grace is that even at your worst, God doesn't love you at your worst less than he loves you at your best. No matter how we're doing, his grace is for us. And why? way we know we're getting better at this is that we're feeling more free to admit our brokenness to each other than hide our brokenness from each other. And that we're putting our arms around each other to love each other as God transforms us. There's just a freedom to be honest and vulnerable with one another. 
That's what the gospel does toward one another. It humbles us from feeling like we have to pretend and perform our way into holiness. I think another way I just want to mention briefly is that I think it gives us greater hope in suffering. And there is just so much pain and suffering at the moment. There is so much going on in so many of our lives. And there is so much mercy for us in that too. I've been reading an amazing book uh, a while ago called Dane Ortland's uh, book called Gentle and Lowly. It's a beautiful book. I would recommend everyone read that book. Such an incredibly gospel-centered book. And he says this, Contrary to what we might expect to be the case, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we are descending even deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it. So there's amazing hope for us in our weakest, at our weakest points in life. As Christians, we have hope, not just for our sin, but for our suffering too. In fact, I would argue that this story of Mephibosheth is maybe an illustration of, what, of God's mercy for our sin, but actually in its story itself, it's more an illustration of mercy for the sufferers. Because that's what's happening to him. And I know in those moments, church, we have a tendency to just be overwhelmed with pain in these times of suffering, in these trials. We look at our pain and just think, how, how could God ever be safe? How could God ever be safe? But you know the beauty of the gospel says? When we look in the face of Jesus and the, the lengths to which he has gone to love us, we could never truly be in danger. Because the one who has loved us will keep us till the end. And he is faithful to draw near when we need him the most. Some of us need to hold on to that again. One of the ways God loves us, there's mercy for the weak, one of the ways God loves us, like he did with Mephibosheth, he brings us into a community to care for us, to love us, to comfort us. Nothing like the family of God. And I I just want to... Go into that next. God's grace forms a family. How did this happen for Mephibosheth? You see, Mephibosheth gets brought to the palace, and the first thing David tells him is, all right, you're going to eat at my table forever. Four times. We've got 13 verses in this chapter. Four times in those 13 verses, we hear about Mephibosheth, that he's going to eat at the royal table. There's clearly... An emphasis here. And he gets a whole load of other blessings. He gets financial blessings. He gets land. He gets protection. He gets treated. David just doesn't just spare his life. He treats him like a son. He's just met with over-the-top grace. In a summary, he gets underserved riches, unconditional favor, unending security. There's echoes in the gospel for this, right? There's echoes in the gospel for us in this. We didn't go looking for the king, but the king came looking for us and made us part of the family. For a moment on uh, the, that imagery of the table, eating at the king's table. Because Mephibosheth saw this only in part, but us having the gift of the full canon of God in his, uh, in his word gives us an even greater story of what this imagery is, that we get to eat at the king's table. I think there's three things in this for us. 
three things that it emphasizes. Firstly, the table emphasizes grace. Mephibosheth would have seen this. See, David could have given any imagery to tell, to tell Mephibosheth that he was a son. He could have given him uh, the royal ring. He could have given him uh, a place or a position, a rank in the family business. He could have given him a hundred other things. What he gives him is a table. And I think the reason for this is just this. When we're sitting at a table, eating with our family or eating with our friends, the work is done and our identity is found in who we're belonging to. And I think God, in his mercy, wanted to show Mephibosheth that his identity is simply in the belonging to the royal family, not in his contribution, not in his gifting, not in what he brought to the table. It's not about earning a seat at the table. He didn't have to uh, perform or to take care of this, and if you do well enough, then you'll earn yourself a seat at the table. No, the table comes first. Everything else flows on from that. That is gospel for us. The table comes first. As I said, we get a greater understanding of this in the rest of Scripture. The second way the table, um, what the second thing the table emphasizes here is that it emphasizes Jesus. In the Scriptures in the New Testament, um, taking communion is seen as an act of coming to the Lord's table. And as we do that, and we're going to do that today together later, we get reminded of what uh, it took to bring us into this family. What it took to enable us to eat at this table. It took the blood of Jesus spilled for us and the body of Jesus broken for us. We get to celebrate that afresh. That's the only reason we get to eat at the King of Kings table. I think the third thing is that we have this beautiful picture of what is to come for God's people. Revelation paints this amazing story of what will happen when it's all said and done and all of God's people are sitting at the table of tables feasting together. And it's going to be amazing. We're going to have Abraham and David and Adam and Paul and Peter and John and Deborah and somehow Wazi, you and me. And we're going to look at each other and say, how on earth did we get here? And we're going to know what the answer is because we're going to look at the head of the table and see our king. It's going to be a beautiful day. Friends, if you're suffering this morning, doesn't that put hope in your heart? No matter how bad things get today, no matter how uh, painful life might be, no matter how burdened you are in this moment, we have the meal of meals, the feast awaiting us. And there will be joy and laughter and no more tears. It will be beautiful and brilliant. And it is something to look forward to. That's the family that we've been made part of. And that nothing is being brought into His grace. Just as we respond this morning, we pray our hearts. I think the fourth thing I just want to say is that God's grace humbles our hearts. And um, this is some of the impact of grace. As we think about Mephibosheth and his story, and... Um, there's sort of three parts to his story. As I said, there's him fleeing the palace. There's this too. And the next time we hear about Mephibosheth is later on in 2 Samuel chapter 19. And what happens in that story 
is, um, and we'll unpack this in the coming weeks, but there is basically a, a bit of a civil war, an uprising. David's son, Absalom, uh, sort of revolts against him as his renegade son. And um, there is a conflict between Ziba and Mephibosheth. And so David's uh, kingdom is threatened. Uh, during this conflict, he had to flee Jerusalem and he becomes a refugee uh, until ultimately uh, Absalom is defeated and killed in battle and David is enabled to come home to Jerusalem. And so upon his arrival, David confronts Mephibosheth because... Uh, when David fled Jerusalem, Mephibosheth had stayed behind. Now, here's where the conflict comes in. Ziba told David that the reason Mephibosheth stayed behind is that he has rejected David as king fighting with the enemy. And so when David comes, uh, seeks him out and goes to David to tell him his side of the story and says, no, that's not what happened. What happened is that Ziba left me behind. I'm crippled and I've got no way to get out of this mess. I had to stay. I had no option. Now, we are never told uh, who's right and who's wrong because David had to deal with this um, situation seriously. If he could find out who was lying, it would be treated as treason. But he couldn't find out the story and there were conflicting uh, truths here. And so what he does is that he, instead of punishing either, he shows mercy to both. And so he decides to actually take all of Saul's estate and split it evenly among Ziba and Mephibosheth. Now what happens to Mephibosheth? All these years of being shown love and grace have led him to this moment. And what does he do? He says, no, give it all to Ziba. I don't need it. You're back. I get to have you. See what grace does? The impact of mercy on our hearts is it's just a story of a man growing in contentment and joy and dependence and trust. He doesn't need the king's stuff. He's got the king. Amazing. Just as we respond this morning, I've been looking deeply into this theology of weakness and just encourage. There's two ways to respond to this king of mercy again. In our need, in our suffering, in our sin. As we think about this, one way is to respond like Ziba, who doesn't want to appear weak, who engages in desperate power grabbing and tries to get in on grace through manipulation and performing and deceit. And then there's Mephibosheth, who understands the mercy of weakness and that there is grace in weakness. And he comes to his king in his need and in his desperation, admitting where he's at with the empty hands of faith and gets met with incredible mercy. And again, that's for us this morning, family. We're going to take communion in a moment and we're going to celebrate the ultimate act of mercy toward us in the gospel and what Jesus has done. And just as we prepare our hearts to respond to the, to the mercy of God, as we consider all these incredible truths, I just want to pray with us and for us that God would help us Again, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, that grace would again capture our hearts. That as we reflect on this incredible gift of grace that we could never earn and never lose, that we would recapture the wonder as David prayed, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Please, God, would you do that among us? And for those looking in,
that God would give you grace this morning to just call on his name. His hand is never too short to save, and he is faithful. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for this amazing story of grace, that as we read this, we get to be reminded ultimately of how you have loved us in the gospel. God, thank you that your grace really is sufficient in our weakness. We're amazed, God, that we get to eat at your table. Thank you that, God, we are not left uh, on our own devices to try to live like this, but that you are transforming us by this grace to be agents of grace and mercy to those around us. I just want to pray this morning for us again that as sinners, you'd help us trust in your grace and celebrate your grace and just revel in this amazing Message of mercy over our lives in Jesus. Considering faith in Jesus, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself. I pray that you would pour out your spirit. God, would you extend grace and mercy, open our eyes to see you, our hearts to believe in you and trust in you. And God, I just pray this morning for those among us who are in suffering. Well, Jesus, thank you that you are an ever-present help in times of trouble. Thank you that you will never leave nor forsake us. Thank you that you are faithful to the end. Thank you that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Thank you that you can sympathize as our high priest with our weaknesses. And that that's not just a, a thing of you being able to intellectually understand our weaknesses. No, it's that you're with us in it. That you are ever-present, God. Thank you for that. I pray that you would draw near to us once again as we declare our dependence on you and our thankfulness for you in communion. Amen.